I want to thank Mike for leading us through our time of prayer. Um, what else do we need to do? Is it okay? Closer? Or is it close? Is it better? Okay, good. Uh, through our time of prayer, Hannah and the worship team for leading us through our time of worship. Um, you guys made a big effort today. I know the ACF bus didn't come. Thank you, uh, ACF drivers, RISE drivers, everyone else who helped get you here. Thank you for your perseverance. I don't know if you need to stand out in the cold waiting for a bus that didn't come, but thank you again for persevering um, through that. I'd like to review a little bit of where we've been the last couple of weeks. Let's see if this is working here. Higher, higher. Is that any better? Better? Ben, I can't go forward. Is there anything I can do here to help? There it goes. Okay, good. All right. I need to, Kevin. Okay, thanks. How's that sound? Is that better? Yeah. Okay, thank you. I'll tell you a side note, you know, usually Julie does this for me every week, so I don't know where I'm putting the mic. Um, and it's interesting, Julie's been gone for about three days, and the upside of Julie being gone three days is I've lost a pound and a quarter. So I think, you know, if she was gone like a three more days, I'd be down to my ideal weight. I don't know if the Sun family lost weight too and Irene was gone, but I feel like this is actually kind of a good thing um, for her being away. That's one upside. But anyways, okay, we're back to our pictures here. Uh, on the upper left, there's a groups celebrating the um, Christmas. On your right, you see ACF having their Christmas um, party. And lower left are the elder pastors. We got together actually for kind of like a Christmas celebration and ate dinner together. And some of you came to different homes. Uh, at our home, we sang Christmas carols together. So it's very special. I know many of you spent time at home with your families. And I, I always encourage ACFers, this is a short time for you to be home to tell your parents how you love them Tell them you spend time with them. So it's not just time to sleep and do your laundry. But I hope you guys spent that time wisely uh, with, with your parents uh, building the relationships there. And then this picture, um, we have um, some skiers, this is some rise people. You guys skied at Stowe, is that correct? You got some good skiing uh, on the upper left there. And then um, Larry, is Larry here today this morning? I think I didn't see him here yet. But anyways, you can probably guess how Larry is. Larry had a birthday party and it was really nice that cell group B surprised him. He walked in the sanctuary and there's all these people waiting for him surprise. And I hope he was very surprised with his uh, birthday party there. And then on the far right, uh, we normally don't have Christmas lunch, but Jimmy and Diane uh, cooked like 400 meatballs for us. And I have to tell you, he goes to this place to get these meatballs uh, to cook for us every weekend. We kind of take lunch for granted, but he kind of goes to this place called Restaurant Depot. If you've never been to Restaurant Depot, Restaurant Depot is like the equivalent of Aldi's is to like Whole Foods. And so he goes to this really little place all in a while and he goes to these freezers that are freezing cold, boxes just kind of ripped open, and find stuff for us to eat every Sunday. So uh, we can thank Jimmy and Diane for all their work getting us food. Thank you for paying for the ACF retreat. That, that's really important. Next week, there'll be a lot of time spent um, preparing for that, praying for that, uh, people flying in from different cities for that retreat. So we're really looking forward uh, to that time with the ACFers, with the um, YFers, with the RISE members. It really helps ACF in particular become much more cl close. When the ACFers spend time praying and sharing and uh, repenting together, there's something that draws them together. So pray for that next week as we uh, really look for the Lord to bring us close together. A side note on that, it's interesting. I'm looking through the registration list and they put down 
how many uh, YF kids come, how many freshmen, how many sophomore, and looking through the list. And if you graduated, they have a, a, no, a nomenclature next to you that says a dinosaur. So like, I think, wow. And then like between Julie and I, they put next to us, they put like dust. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, no, they didn't do that. Okay. All right. So anyways, there's a neat blend of people coming to that retreat next year. And you'll be able to see us as we stream in um, from the retreat next week. Okay, so last week, last week, uh, oh, if you don't have a First Corinthians journal, just raise your hand and the ushers can get you one. We're going through, I would like you to have um, First Corinthians in your hand. So either have your Bible, or if you don't have one, just raise your hand. Uh, Jed will bring you a copy of First Corinthians. So either have your Bible or um, the journal, just raise your hand if you need one. Okay, so anyways, last week, Pastor Hans brought us through First Corinthians 8. Does anyone remember First Corinthians 8? What we talked about? That was about something sacrifice to idols okay we talked about meat sacrifice idols and it's kind of neat here we talked about you know barbecue meat we talked about all kinds of meat he talked to he didn't talk about premium cuts of meat he actually went to something very interesting he actually talked to us about not just eating sacrificed meat but there's a deeper context to that passage and we go to first corinthians 8 we always just think about should we eat meat or should we not eat meat and he, and he said, well, why, why can't Paul just say yes or no? Why can't he just answer the question? But Paul brought us to a whole different level of thinking about sacrifice meat. And one of the questions, I'm kind of paraphrasing, Pastor Hans didn't say this, but it's, it's the idea that did Christ save us so that we could eat meat sacrifice idols? And he was tying this question into the fact that there's something bigger at hand here. And that was your salvation, that somehow eating meat is tied to your salvation. And if you followed his message last week, he kind of brought us to this conclusion that eating meat or not eating meat is an indication of one of two things. If you eat meat or don't eat meat, it's because of your fellowship with God, with your relationship with God, with your understanding of God, with knowing what God wants in your life, knowing God's will, knowing God's word. It's directly related whether you're going to eat meat or not eat meat, how close you are to the Lord. Then secondly, how much do you love your neighbor? So he brought it to a very interesting point. It's not a yes, no question. It's a question of your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Now, if you get that, that's going to set the context for today because Paul's going to go even deeper into this idea of should you eat meat or not eat meat and what can we do? What can't we do? So I hope you keep that in mind that there's a simple answer and then there's a much deeper answer as we look through this passage today. Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer. I'm very thankful that you brought us here this morning. You've been waiting for us. You've been preparing for us. You're longing for us to be in your presence. And here we are after this long week, after a difficult start to the year, after many of us are very um, tired. This is the place for refreshment. This is the place where we can be encouraged. This is the place we'll find peace. This is the place we'll find you. As you spend time in your word this morning, it'd be very clear that you're speaking to each one of us individually. That your word is written to be powerful and cutting, insightful, and to bring us to repentance of the sin in our hearts and bring us back to Christ once again. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so this is the same outline that you have in your bulletins. Um, it's basically... Paul telling us how we can love others and what the cost of that is. 
I'm going to talk about how he establishes his right. He spends a long time, half the chapter, talking about his rights. And then he talks about what he's getting, what his reward really is. And we'll conclude with this last part. I'm stealing Pastor Han's passage from next week, 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's the general principle. You get that principle right, you'll be right every time. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do all for the glory of God. You get that right? You got today's message. Okay, so let's go over the first part here. Uh, I'm just going to reread to you one through five. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you, uh, my, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat or drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So Paul's just laying it out here in, the, in these five or six verses here, his rights. He's saying, this is my right, this is my right. And you look at it here, he's establishing his rights. Am I not free? Don't I have liberty? Can I exercise my rights? Don't I have things that are due to me? And he goes a little deeper and he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Lord? The apostles are those that have seen the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. He had a direct relationship with the risen Lord. Another, if you look at that verse, it says, he's a, you Corinthians are a seal. Just the Corinthians being there is confirmation of his apostleship because they did not know Christ before he came. When he comes, they're the fruit of his labor. His apostleship is confirmed by the very fact that the Corinthians are a church standing before God. And then do I not have the right to eat and drink? Like, don't I get the privilege of being provided for? Don't I deserve provisions? And lastly, um, don't I have a right to take along a believing wife? This one I couldn't reconcile. I don't know actually why he put that in there, but uh, we know he's single at this point in his life, um, but he feels like I'm depriving my rights. I, I should have one. Peter's got one. The other apostles got one. I don't have one. Shouldn't I have the right to one? So he's very clear that there's certain rights, certain liberties, certain privileges that he's given up in order to minister to the Corinthians. But it doesn't stop there. As I told you, he goes deeper. Here it is in verse um, seven. And verse seven says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. So I just told you I have rights and privileges. Now I'm gonna to go to the world. I'm just gonna show you from the world's point of view. I'm just gonna show you just from common sense as you look around the world, a soldier who goes to fight doesn't provide his own food, doesn't provide his own way to go. The government provides for him. The country provides for him. They give him his weapons, they give him food, they take care of him when he is fighting for that country. If you're planting a vineyard and you're planting a fruit, aren't you allowed to eat some of the fruit? After all the work of you've done of planting and harvesting, you deserve some of the fruit if you're working in a field, working in an orchard. And if you're working with goats or sheep, aren't you entitled to some of the milk? So this is just common sense. If you're working in any of these fields, a worker deserves your pay. That's just common sense. Paul's saying, you know what? I have all these rights. Now, secondly, I'm going to tell you something else. From just worldly common sense, workers get paid. 
Okay, so now he's gonna stick into it a little bit more. So he stuck it to him twice already. Now he's gonna do it a third time to the Corinthians verses 9 through 13. Let's read here. For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it not for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope of the thresh, thresher thresh in hoping of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so he talked about his rights. He talked about the worldly customs, how it works. And now I'm gonna show you from God's word. If you guys don't get it yet, I'm gonna push the point even deeper what does God tell us about paying his workers, about getting the wages that we deserve? Okay, so number one, does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the game. This is from Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy 25, when an ox is, you know, making its way along the, the mill, you know, pushing that millstone, can't the ox reach down and eat some of the grain? Well, certainly that ox is entitled to some of that grain. If the ox is entitled to that grain, if God cares about an animal, if God cares about this beast, should God not care even more about us, his children? So if that animal gets to eat, shouldn't we as God's servants? Number two, he talks about, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in sacrificial offerings? Many passages about this, one is from Leviticus 2, that when the priests are sacrificing their meat, sacrificing the grain, they're entitled to take their share. This is God's sacrifice, it's for God's glory, but the workers uh, in the temple are allowed to take their piece. So God provides for the temple workers, God provides for those who are serving the kingdom first, so what, you can get your share of those sacrifices. He brings out Christ. Is my microphone working? Is it doing okay? You're doing okay. Okay, I'm gonna make sure we're okay. Okay, so number three, Christ taught about provisions. And he wasn't clear exactly what he's referring to. I brought one verse here from Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 says, and remain eating and drinking what they provide for the labor deserves his wages. So when Christ was talking to the disciples, when you stay in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide the laborer deserves his wages. So there's a sense here that Christ's saying, when you go out to minister, you go out to people's homes, eat what they provide, which is, is normal, because you're working for them. You're thinking about them. You're putting their needs ahead of your own. These people should feed you. These people should take care of you. So here's three examples that Paul uses God's word to say that a worker deserves these wages. And getting the worker to deserve these wages He's, he's establishing a case. Okay, so he spent, let's see, how many verses? Uh, 13, um, no, actually 14, 14 verses describing his rights. And that's what he does for half the chapter. Okay, so he spends half the chapter establishing, so okay, Paul, I got it. I got it. I finally get it. You deserve your wages. Why does Paul spend 14 verses establishing his wages and saying that his wages are due to him? I mean, he spends so long going over that. And now I'm going to jump down to 18. Well, actually, let me start 15. Let me read 15. But I've made no use of any of these things, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. 
for I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. And if it is not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right of the gospel. Okay, so uh, again, 14 verses, these are my rights. This is my custom. This is what God's word said. Time and time again, he established his rights, time and right. And now he's turning on the Corinthians in verse 18, he says, what then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. My right in the gospel is to get monetary gain, to get food from you, to be provided from you. That's my right in the gospel. He, he established that clearly. That's my right. But in 18, in the verses preceding that, he said, you know what? I'm going to give that up. I'm going to give up my right. These are things that are due to me. These are things that you owe me. These are things that should be provided for me. But you know what? I'm giving up my right. I give my right to do this. So the implication here is that the Corinthians are not giving him any compensation. The Corinthians have not provided for him. The Corinthians have not thought about his needs. The Corinthians have not provided the worker his due. The Corinthians are the ones that he's talking to right here. That you should have provided all this for me. I've not once demanded it from you, but nonetheless, you should have given that to me. And there's a conflict here because Paul is living here among them. He established the church here. He gave them all these things, and yet they're not taking care of Paul. So in that little chart down here, you can see how Paul has gone throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the province of Asia. He set up churches all over the place. Corinthians is one of the churches that does not support him. Um, Berean church supports him. Thessalonica church supports him. The Philippi church, which Pastor Hans told me is very poor, supported him. The very poor churches are supporting Paul, but this rich church, this church that is very affluent, this is a rich city, Corinth. These people are really rich. They're sitting around debating about different philosophies. You can't do that unless you're rich. These guys are ones not supporting Paul. Isn't that interesting? That the churches who could barely afford it, the churches who are struggling, they're sending Paul supplies, sending Paul money, sending Paul people to come alongside him. Corinth wasn't doing any of that. So Paul is making them aware of their position. And Pastor Hans went through this before already in chapter three. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, you're still the flesh. You're dealing with these worldly philosophies. You're thinking, who's the best philosopher? Chapter five, you're dealing with sexual immorality. They couldn't even throw out that brother who's living with his um, mother-in-law, mother-in-law, or you know, mother. And they're dealing with these terrible things that they can't even get it right. And you guys couldn't even support me. You're like little babies. You're like infantiles. These things are so simple. These things are so clear. You know, I'm not gonna burden you with supporting me because you guys can't handle it. You guys can't handle the truth. 
I'm trying to give them something to, to feed you on and to be more solid, but you can't take it. You're incapable of handling the truth. The Corinthians are unable to be strong and to be able to do the right things. And Paul's treating them as such, those little infants. I should have used my right. I had this right to demand from you that you guys support me, but you couldn't have taken it. You don't understand. You can't do the heavy lifting. You're unable to stand on your feet. You guys are little babies that can't handle the truth that Paul is bringing to them. Okay, so you see Paul's argument. It's very clear that Paul is teaching them. He, he's admonishing them, but he's also bringing them to a higher level. We don't leave our young believers like that. They're young believers, they're immature, but that's never where God leaves us. It's not where Christ leaves us. And it's not where Paul will leave them. So that's your state. That's your immaturity. That's your little infantile mindset. But let's bring you to maturity. Let's bring you to where God wants us to be. For men and women, all of us here in this room, we're not where we should be. That's where we are right now. But God will continue to work with us. And he does the same thing here in the Corinthian church. Okay, so how's he teach them? Okay, so we've gone from 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Okay, so here's the principle. Okay, so that's where you're at. Okay, I get that. That's, that's where all of us are at in some way. All of us are infantile in some way. Now Paul's going to teach you. Okay, let's figure out how not to stay in this state anymore. Let's figure out how to grow. So what he says here, I'm free from all. I made myself a servant to all. So you know what? I'm going to model Christ. I'm going to be your servant. Let me teach you how to be like Christ. Let me teach you how to be a servant. Um, here it is. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. And I, I'm going to go to one more here. And to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, I myself win those under the law. So Paul, obviously, you know Paul's background. He is a tribe of Benjamin, baptized you know, on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he, he, was, he was very accomplished as a Jew. So for the Jewish people, he understood what they needed. If I'm going to minister to the Jews, if I'm going to help the Jews become servants of Christ, if I'm going to help elevate their game, what I'm going to do for the Jews, I'm going to take Timothy and I'll circumcise him. You know what? Timothy doesn't need to be circumcised. Timothy has no reason to be circumcised but because you're a jew and because that's very important to you and, and really circumcision is not right or wrong it's, it's it's one of those matters we're indifferent about i will have timothy circumcised so when he comes along and we come to our jewish community you won't be offended by my co-worker jew uh, timothy who is not circumcised he is circumcised okay i think okay so paul's teaching them i am coming down I'm going to be a servant to you. I'm going to come to your level. I'm going to be a Jew as to the Jew. 
and he goes on, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, under the law of Christ, I might win those outside the law. Um, this is a different principle. Now we're talking about the Gentiles. We're not talking about the Jews anymore, but the Gentiles. So when I bring along Titus, when Titus comes to me, and we're ministering to the Gentiles, I don't make Titus become circumcised. Titus comes right alongside me. We come in their missionary journeys. We go come to your city. I'm telling you, you don't have to be circumcised. Well, that's kind of interesting. You make Timothy be circumcised, you make Titus not be circumcised. What is Paul doing here? Paul is not saying yes. He's not saying, no, this is what we learned from last chapter. He's not giving us a pat answer like, just do this. This is all you need, just follow these rules. What he's telling us is to love people the way that Christ would, if Christ under the same circumstance. And here's to the Corinthians, I'm gonna put them in this category. To the weak, I became weak. He's talking to the Corinthians. You guys are weak. You guys couldn't support me. You guys couldn't give me provisions. So, so what? I'm going to come down to your level, Corinthians. I won't demand anything from you. I'll get my support from Philippi, from Thessalonica, from the Bereans. I won't take anything from you. So to the Corinthians, to the weak Christians here, I'm going to be, I'll be fine. I don't need anything from you guys. I won't demand it from you. So Paul is being a very interesting example of what it means to be a servant. That's what it says in the first thing. I've made, I've made myself a servant. It's not Christianity with rules and rights and wrongs and like do and thou shalt not. Christianity is a learning process of being a servant like Christ. It's much more complicated than we think. We think, I just want rules. I just want a yes. I just want to know. And when we do it, this do it for the sake of the gospel like Christ did it, that I might have them in all its blessings. That's when we actually gain its blessings. Not by obeying rules, but having a relationship with God, knowing his will, knowing what Christ would do, and then serving those around us. That's the gospel. That's the message we're trying to get across. And so you come out of these chapters thinking, I can eat meat or I can't eat meat. That's part of it, but you missed the main point. The main point here is that I give up my rights. I become a servant. I become one that follows Christ. Okay, so we talked about this and kind of summarizing it. That's the verses we just talked about. If you can't read it, that's the verses uh, from 19 to 23. And I think about what, okay, I'll, I'll give you an insight into my life. My life, uh, especially when Julie's not here, I, I, I spend more time on Netflix. I'll be honest, you got more Netflix. And then if you go to Gordon's Netflix account, you know, you pull up my little name and it clicks on it. And then they have a line there. I don't know if you guys have this line, like uh, movies picked out for you or something, right? And you have like recommended movies for you, right? And so if you look at my account, you'll find this uh, line here, and almost all my movies are like Korean. Okay, but not just Korean movies, they're a special genre of Korean movies. And these movies are very intricate, designed for revenge. I mean, they, I mean they're, they're, they're amazing ones. I don't know if you guys have seen these movies, like, like uh, you know, someone burned down their house, or someone you know, killed their parents, or someone you know, took away their job. And then these guys for five, 10, 15, 20 years, they devised this plan to get revenge. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. You watch it play out and you watch it over these years and how they planned and they go to school and they learn these trades and they do something to weave their way back in and they get revenge. They get back the person that took their house. They get back you know, the people that killed their parents and, and, and they killed their family. And, and, and it's amazingly well done. And I think my whole role is like that because I like, this is like, it's like, I don't know, Counter Monte Crisco, Asian stuff, right? So um, that's the worldly way to get back. You know, like my right 
is to get revenge. My right is to get my money back. My right is to get my family property back, which your family stole from my family. That is the worldly way of exerting our rights. Our rights are mine and I don't dare give them up. I'm gonna fight and I'm gonna claw and I'm gonna scheme until I get my rights back. That is the worldly way to go about things. Secondly, I went to um, a website here. This is on Columbia University. Columbia University was teaching you how to use the correct pro pronouns. You in school probably know this. There's like 20 pronouns that you're supposed to choose, um, not he and she. Actually, he and she are probably on there, but the rest I didn't recognize. The other 18 I didn't recognize. I don't know what these other pronouns mean for a person, but this particular website had a few PowerPoint slides on how to do it. What struck me about that, on the last page of how to address people by their chosen pronouns was a whole page about apology. That when you get it wrong, when you don't call the person by their correct pronoun that they want, they have all these ways that you should apologize. And you should apologize quickly. And you should apologize profusely. And you should very much make it clear that you did not mean to offend them by calling the wrong pronoun. And it's very much that you're in the wrong. You've done something offensive. You've offended someone because you stepped on their right to choose their pronoun and you didn't acknowledge what they claim to be. And I'd say this sermon is not about that, but it's the idea that, the idea is that we have to apologize to the world for their standards and what the world wants. And the world is pushing their agenda on us as Christians and we have to apologize for that. That's what this website was taking, that their rights are so important that when it comes down to it, you apologize. This is their right. They get to do whatever they want, call whatever they want, marriage whatever they want, pronouns whatever they want, and we have to apologize to them. And if we don't, it's a hate crime, okay? Our last one here is, oh yeah, so it's outside the church, but now it's inside the church too. I don't know if you can see this, but these are, are Christians saying, you know, they want gay marriage in the church. They want them you know, to be pastors. They want us to acknowledge their lifestyle, their choices, what they want to do, and now inside the church. It's not just outside the church, it's now inside the church where those rights are now being demanded. You have to acknowledge me the way I am. You have to acknowledge my marriage. You have to acknowledge my sexual preference, not just outside the church now, but inside the church. These things are now being thrust upon us in a way that we see the rights of the world, the rights of what I want. The narcissism in our culture is that I want, I get it, and there's nothing you can do about it. I demand these things. These are my rights. This is my privilege. You can't tell me that I don't deserve these things. And that message, I'm afraid to tell you guys, is that Christians don't win this. Somehow Christians think if we just work hard enough and we stay true to our guns, that we're gonna overturn the world. Well, someone could have did it. I would say Christ would have done it. If, if anyone worked this earth and he could have turned the world system around and say, you know what? Now the world is a safer place for Christians. I think Christ would have, but Christians, as much as we're salt, as much as we're light, we don't win this battle until Christ comes again. Now Christ comes again, he will set it right and the battle will be won. But until that time, I'm just warning you right now that we don't win, we don't win this battle. And we win other battles, but we don't get to change the culture and bring heaven on earth. And somehow if we just work hard enough, then all this sin will go away. Christ will do it at the right time, at the right place. In the meantime, what are we called to do? We're called, what Paul's telling us here, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, 
but under the law of Christ, I might win those outside the law. So I'm going to wrestle with this you with you a little bit here. I became as one outside the law. So those things I just had on the board before, like revenge and killing and, you know, forcing your agenda on others, you know, is that what Paul's talking about, that we can go outside the law, we can just do whatever we want? Look at the context of this verse. The verse also says, but you're still under the law of Christ. So yes, we need to be a Jew to the Jew. Yes, we need to be a Gentile to the Gentile. But you have to be careful here. When we bend and we accommodate, and we're trying to make everyone love us, which is not really biblical, but we want everyone to like us, we have to be careful that we're not breaking the law of Christ. Now, there's certain accommodations that Paul does. I want to be very clear about that. But maybe in your white harvest groups, I won't have time this morning, but I want you to wrestle with this. How far do you bend? What do you do? What lines do you not cross? One of those lines is called the law of Christ. But what is the law of Christ? What is the line that we can't cross? What things are we saying, you know, that's something I can't do. I'll, I'll bend and I'll love and I'll serve the world, but I can't do that. Because that, to me, that, that's a very important question because we Christians want to love the world in a way that is gospel driven. But how do we know we've gone too far? How do we know when we've compromised and broken the law of Christ? Okay, so I'm going to go to a passage which I think you're going to think is irrelevant, but I'm going to bring it to you. It's about um, Mark 10. Mark 10, all of you know the story. I, I'll just read it to you and you can follow along. Mark 10, 7. And as he's setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked Christ, good teacher, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, created great possessions. I think, Gordon, why are you bring out the story of the rich young ruler? That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Well, it's interesting, as we study that rich young ruler, I think all of us bring away that principle, yes, I have too many possessions, I need to give up things, I need to follow the Lord. Okay, that is clearly there. But I was listening to this pastor speak about this passage, and I never really understood this passage until he, he opened up something for me. So we think about this rich young ruler, he couldn't give up what he had, he's very rich, it was very difficult him for the Lord, and he turns away, and he says, I can't follow the Lord, I can't pay the price, the price is too heavy. And then this pastor said, do you understand this passage? This is about Christ. I what? This is about Christ? Because Christ is the ruler. Christ is the rich one. Christ has all the glory. Christ has all the standing. Christ has all the status. He's got everything in heaven. And what does he do? He turns his back on all the riches, all the glory, everything that he has, and he comes to serve us. And then it made sense. I realized this story is about servanthood, true servanthood, because only Christ could have done that. Only Christ could have modeled that for us. That's Christ who's given up all his rights, all his, everything he has, all that glory, and he comes to serve us. And he serves us in a way 
that's not just in words. He gets on his hands and his knees and he washes our feet. He comes down and he dies for us on the cross and he asks to be forgiven those who are crucifying him. The servanthood of Christ is at a whole different level. This idea that when we become those outside of becoming like a Gentile, becoming like a Jew, becoming a servant, we always look to Christ because Christ gave it all away. Christ served us in a way that no one else could serve us. No one has more rights than Christ. No one had more claims to say that, you know, these things are mine, and he gave them away willingly to serve us. And this is the principle that Paul's demonstrating here, that we give up our rights just like our master. We give up the things that are important to us, things that matter so much to us, the things that we're clawing and fighting for in this world in order to be like Christ. That is the message of this passage. Okay. So I'm going to close with one more um, passage. If you turn to the last part of your um, passage here, we'll look from 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. So I think the principle is very simple here. Discipline does not come naturally. The sacrifice does not come naturally. Being a servant does not come naturally. This takes hard work. It takes work like an athlete. It takes work who really puts their effort into it. This is not something you can just wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to serve everyone. I'll be a servant to all. It's hard, and it's a lot of training. Um, anyone know what Pastor Han's favorite movie is? I think it's your favorite movie. He always says, what movie you don't watch? He always says the same movie. Anyone know? <laughs> Sleepless Seattle. <laughs> no, that, I, I'm not going to watch that with Pastor Hans. I'm not going to watch. Someone said Sleepless Seattle. You guys, anyways, that, that's a whole different topic. Okay, anyways, I would say um, it's Chariots of Fire. I don't know if that's his favorite, but every time I say, what do you want to watch? He, he always says Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire, as you guys have seen, a 1981 movie about um, Eric Little. Eric Little was a Scottish uh, man who ran in the Olympics in 1924. Uh, well, he trained only about training and all the sacrifice he does. 1924, he goes to the Olympics, an amazing thing. He is destined to win the 100 meter. That is his best event, 100 meters. Like, this is, this is him. He, he's going to win this one. The 200 meter and 400 meter, he was also going to compete in. But again, it was 100 meter. As the schedule comes out, you guys know the story. Uh, the 100 meter ends up being on a Sunday. And he says, you know what? I'm going to be in the house of God on Sunday. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to run on that Sunday. I'll run in the 400, which he gets a gold. I'll run in the 200, which he got a bronze. But he gives off his best event. He gives off his best event in order to sit in church on Sunday. So it took a lot of discipline, obviously, for him to get that point. And that movie was very important. But it became a little more personal to me as you understand the story. That was 1924 that he um, wins the gold medal. So, I mean, you think about it. At the pinnacle of your career, if you just win the Olympics, if you just won a gold medal, if you just won a bronze medal, I can't think of a more glorious or more worldly place to be. I mean, everybody knows your name. You're in all the papers. You've, you've just done something incredible that the whole world would know about. What would you do the next year? 
about in 1925, he goes to be a missionary in China. And in a missionary in China, he worked from 1925 to 1943. In 1943, the Japanese come to China and they take prisoner all those working in the mission field. This is a China Inland Mission. You remember Hudson Taylor started this? He worked in that mission and he worked for 18 years serving that whole community only to be interred in a Japanese prison camp in 1943. In 1943, uh, he stays there two years and then he dies in 1945. So you think about that, and 20 years after all of his glory, all of his achievements, he ends up dying in a concentration camp. I think, wow, what a tragic story. I mean, how, 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 how did he have this pinnacle where he's an Olympic athlete, worldwide renowned, and he ends up dying in a prison camp? So anyways, the reason this becomes personal is because in right around the mid-90s, we had uh, this man come speak to us. His, his name is James Hudson Taylor. James Hudson Taylor is the great grandson of Hudson Taylor. As I told you, Hudson Taylor started the China Inland Mission way back 1800s. And it was, a, it was a great mission. And then his great grandson, James Hudson Taylor, came to speak to us at a retreat. And we're all talking about this. And it was just amazing being in his presence. Uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he came to us actually a couple times. As a matter of fact, PCC still supports him through MSI, Medical Services International. If you look one of the mission organizations that we support, we actually still support uh, MSI, which is James Hudson Taylor's um, mission organization. Anyways, we're sitting around the table one day. We're, we're just in retreat. We're just talking. We're just talking about different things. And I just you know, asked him, well, what was it like growing up? And I did not realize that his father also was a missionary in China during that time. And he got separated from his parents. And he got end up in the same prison camp as Eric Little. And he told us these stories of Eric Little being their big brother and demonstrating Christ for them. And Eric Little taking care of them like my little brothers. He, he called us like little brothers. And this is this great man, James Hudson Taylor, I, I, you know, being cared for by this Olympic athlete who gave up all his rights and said, it's more important I take care of these little missionary kids that don't have their parents anymore. And the more, I heard these stories of Eric Little and what they've given up. It helped me understand, again, what Christ has done for us. The amount of service, the amount of servitude, being able to give up your rights, you know, to give up the things that are due to you, things that are so important to us, it pales in significance to what Christ has done for us and how Christ has modeled for us. There's, there, there's really nothing we could ever do to repay Christ in that way. But he calls us alongside of him to be his servants, to give up our rights, to be like Christ, and say, you know what? This is not so important to me. What's more important is I bring you the gospel. At great cost to me, or great cost to Eric Little, or great cost to Paul, I gladly put those things aside in order they can bring you Christ. That's the best thing I can do for you. That's the most important thing I can do for you. And if we're too hung up, on my rights and what's mine and these people offended me and I don't like this people and I'm not getting we've missed the point. We've missed the point of what Christ has done for us. If you understand what Christ has done for us, what he's given up for us, the, the rights he's given up for us. It's a turnaround. Now your life has changed. You're able to put your rights down just like Paul, just like Christ, just like Eric little and you can serve in a way that would honor Christ. Okay, let's close.
and way to pray. Father, you brought us once again to the person of Christ, and it always comes back to Christ. It always comes back to the servant who lived and obeyed you and said, not my will, but your will be done. That's our example. That's the man you put in front of us to follow. Thank you for Christ, what he's done, what he's given, the model he set before us. So we, as men and women, the followers of Christ, might be able to put others ahead of ourselves. Thank you for this passage this morning, convicting our hearts of our own sin and reminding us to become like Christ. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Please rise as we conclude our service with worship.
Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ever His people be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be. to you from uh, chapter 10, 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks, God, just as I please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Father, we're standing at the feet of Christ, our Lord and our Master who modeled for us what it means to be a servant, what it means to give up our rights in order that some might be saved, in order that you might be glorified. May it be clear, Father, that that is the pattern you set for us, not to be babies, not to be immature, not to think of ourselves first, but to put Christ and his kingdom first. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, may be seated. Okay, so we will have a White Harvest Day 